It also creates a dependency on the part of the person who's on the monitor, which makes them feel helpless. They can't contribute to the income. They can't do any of the tasks. They can't go to their children's school events. They can't do all kinds of things that they would want to be involved in to try to be human, right? It's not either jail or uh, a monitor. The third choice is freedom. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening uh, to everyone who has taken time out of their busy Tuesday to join us in a conversation about James Kilgore's new book, Understanding E-Carceration. E-Carceration. My name is Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I am a friend of James Kilgore, is also a professor in the Earth and Environmental Sciences program at the CUNY Graduate Center, where I'm also director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics. And some of my other hats include, as some of you might know, a long-time, very close working, founding, developing, learning from relationship with critical resistance and other abolitionist organizations in the United States and throughout the world. And I'm delighted to be talking with James today. I'm going to introduce James very briefly. Uh, He is an activist, a researcher and writer based in Urbana, Illinois, where he has lived since paroling from prison in 2009. He is the director of the Challenging E-Carceration Project at Media Justice and the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program in Champaign, Illinois. And for those of you who don't know, Champaign and Urbana are joined more or less at the hip. Uh, James is the author of five books, including the award-winning Understanding Mass Incarceration. So James, thanks for asking me to talk about your new book uh, with you, and thanks to the fantastic people at Haymarket for providing this platform, especially to uh, Rachel and John and all of the people who behind the scenes make things work. And thank you finally to the New Press for publishing this important title. So James, tell us, how did you come to write this book? What Uh, happened? uh, Well, thanks. Thanks, Ruthie. And uh, I also want to express my thanks to Hey, market to John and Rachel, and also to the New Press um, for organizing this and making this uh, making this happen. It's exciting to be able to chat to you, Ruthie. We haven't been able to talk for a while. Yes, <laughs> COVID 
the COVID uh, penalties that we pay. Um, so, I mean, I wrote this book to tie together a few threads of my own experience and uh, both in terms of incarceration, electronic monitoring, but also participating in movements over the years. I mean, at the smallest scale, the book is about, it's a critique of electronic monitoring that draws on my experience of being on a year, on a monitor for a year as a condition of my parole, but also on the stories of dozens of other people who have been on electronic monitor monitors who I've interviewed as part of the Challenging Incarceration Project at Media Justice, as well as in my local community, uh, people coming in through our reentry program. And for me, those stories are the most powerful evidence as to why EM is not an alternative to incarceration, but why it's an alternative form of incarceration and a particularly pernicious one at that. As probably most people on this call are aware, the use of EM is rapidly expanding we need to stop that. But as you also know, Ruthie, I'm not a criminal justice reformer. I'm not a policy wonk. <laughs> I'm an abolitionist and a lifelong anti-capitalist of various stripes. So I decided to write this book to place electronic monitoring in a bigger context. That's why I chose this probably slightly odd title, Understanding Ecarceration. Um, not understanding electronic monitoring because it's about much more than that. So for me, incarceration, which is a term I borrowed from Malkia Devit Cyril with, with their permission, of course, it covers a wide range of technologies of punishment and control that we have to confront. From electronic monitoring to license plate readers to drones to facial recognition to risk assessment tools to surveillance cameras to weaponized databases. And like electronic monitoring, these technologies are often presented as reforms, as tools to make a better society. But in most cases, they do the opposite. They deprive people of liberty. They form a technological system of oppression that especially targets black people, migrants, and other people of color. But as I show in the book also, this is a global system that tracks Palestinian youth in Gaza. Black people on pretrial release in Kailicha in South Africa, as surely as it is monitoring black people like Mohawk Johnson, who's been sitting under 24-7 house arrest in Chicago on, on an ankle shackle for a year and a half. So EM is interwoven to all these technologies. And I think the, the, the probably a crucial piece is that all the data from these technologies technologies are meeting up in the cloud where data never sleeps, where it's constantly moving to deepen systems of control and punishment, as well as, of course, make money. So those are the two descriptive parts of the book, but I also aim to do more than just describe. I will, hopefully it'll help mobilize people to push back against the expanding power of technology to punish and control. And I've outlined some important steps taken by organizations like the Chicago Community Bond Fund, the Detroit Community Technology Project, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, Survived in Punishment, just to name a few. But I hope the book will trigger our imaginations to create other paths to transforming society by organizing human beings and building organizations and communities based on ties of solidarity and to resist the rise of fascism that we are confronting. And I want to just add that you know, a lot has changed even in the years since I finalized, you know, the text for that book. So, so I mean, it becomes actually a work in progress. 
Um, this is a complicated moment with no easy formulas. I've put out a few ideas, but there's a lot more work to do. Yeah. Well, that's a great overview, James. And I just want to encourage people who might, sorry, there's always a siren somewhere. <laughs> people who might feel um, that the torrent of, it, of um, uh connected activities that James just presented us with is so overwhelming that we don't know where to start. But if I'm understanding you, James, and certainly if I'm understanding my seven decades on the planet doing the kind of work that we've done together side by side, it is that if things are so complicated, it means there are many, many places to start to do the work. The sirens pass. And in, in your book, James, in your very straightforward prose and clear explanations, you reveal, as you just described, how electronic shackles relentlessly expand, expand the police state into every corner of vulnerable people's lives. So these shackles then are draining people. They're draining time. And they're draining money from individuals who wear them. And they are connecting a profile of many individuals into groups, as you just exemplified by talking about what happens in South Africa and Palestine and elsewhere. And incarceration also sucks resources from households, from communities, by outsourcing jail time and jail space to people's homes. So all of these things are happening at once. And so companies and law enforcement agencies reap the revenue. And here is something that I would love to talk with you a bit more about, and that is to understand that if we're going to follow the money, we have to follow all of it, not just some of it. And it is very clear that law enforcement, whether it is occupation of Palestine or police forces in South Africa or elsewhere, or law enforcement in Chicago or New York, is getting bigger too, even as, as corporations are as parasites or innovators participating in incarceration. So I wonder if you um, maybe could talk a little bit about the um, the three chapters that are the, I think it's three, the second part of the book, um, in which you uh, kind of talk through, again, from ankle shackles to the surveillance state. If you could take us a little uh, gently through your thinking so that we can see the connection from one to the next, to the next, those dots. Sure. So, I mean, I kind of structured the book to move, maybe if you want to say spatially from the ankle, you know, to the community, to the, to the, to the state, you know, to the kind of, to the borders and to the kind of global political Global political economy. So I think, I, I think it's, I think it's important the, the the connection that you've made there between the state and the private corporations, 
And a lot of people, when they hear about electronic monitoring and they hear that someone is paying $10 a day to be on an electronic monitor, they want to just go after the company. And if we get the companies out of this, we'll have dealt with the, with the situation. But, the, but the, 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 the companies have to, they have to operate in tandem with the state. The state is the one that hires them, contracts them, and uses this, this technology. So we have to keep that, we have to keep in mind that this is a political project. And that's why we find these companies, it's, it's interesting, for example, that two of the larger electronic monitoring companies in the U.S., Supercom and Atenti are based in Israel. And they talk about how they experiment with their technology on Palestinians. So, I'm, I mean, I'm just using that as an example to show how these things are connected. But the other part that I think is really important is the, is the cloud, is the fact that when, when electronic monitors moved in the early 2000s from being radio frequency devices that merely told people, told authorities whether someone was at home, to GPS tracking devices that recorded people's location and then later was able to send that information to the cloud, all of a sudden we have all these databases coming from all different sources being combined, being used in algorithmic calculations to control and punish targeted populations. So so that's what we see when we look at the at what's happening, say, you know, with the technology that's being used at the in the southern border of the United States. We've, we've seen some great work by Mihente and Just Futures Law looking at the ways in which these massive databases have been gathered to track people, but they also use the electronic monitors to to find out where they're working, to carry out to carry out raids and so forth. So all of these things come together. And I mean, the, the, the last point I want to make about this is that it's important to recognize, I mean, Edward Snowden has told us that the NSA is capturing everybody's data, woo, woo, woo. And that's great. I'm, I thank him a lot for doing that. But also we have to recognize that this data impacts different people in different ways. So what I'm arguing, I mean, I use the term the criminalized sector of the working class to say that this is the sector that's not only uh, has their data grabbed, but this data is being used to to punish them, to cur curtail their very survival, whether they're in child protection services, whether they're in, in juvenile justice courts, whether they're in immigration systems. So those are some of the ways in which that, con that connects. I'm, I'm sure there's more to add on to that. Oh, you're on mute. It was on mute, trying to keep the sirens out of our conversation when I can. Let me ask you this. Um, you, were, you were talking about this thing called the cloud. Um, could you, uh, for somebody who doesn't quite know what that is, lay out for us a, a, a quick sketch of what the cloud is and why we should be um, aware of as well as wary about this thing called the cloud? Okay, so before I do that, everybody should look up. If you look up at the sky, you'll see the cloud there, right? <laughs> I mean, it's hard. That, that, that word kind of is kind of confusing. I don't even know, know whether to say it's in the cloud, on the cloud, whatever. But I mean, the cloud is basically a bit, I mean, 
to make it real simple, it's basically a big hard drive. You know, it's basically a big Google drive that's gathering databases from from all kinds of sources. But the the bulk of the cloud is 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 owned by Amazon, Google and Microsoft. So basically, when we're when we're sending when immigration is sending data, when uh, the criminal justice system is is, is sending data, um, when companies are sending data, it's going to the cloud and then the companies do what they will with it. So it becomes a, a so they can use mathematical formulas, algorithms to use that data to track certain people, to maybe predict their behavior, to track certain companies or industries, to see where they might invest in the future. There's a whole range of ways in which they're using this information to benefit themselves, but also to heighten the control that they have over populations, particularly the targeted populations. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds um, so overwhelming, again, because it's so big. Uh, so I'd like to ask you to um, talk to us about some of the ways that you see people have um, uh, brought themselves together, perhaps created solidarities because of the general threat of constant and uh, intensive and extensive surveillance as you understand it. And if you'd like in answering to point not only to what you write about in your book, but to the work of, of other people. You mentioned already Malkia, Devich Cyril. Um, I'm thinking about Tamara Knopper, who has done a lot of good stuff on data literacy and others. Um, that might help too our audience think about how to organize against these problems. Right. Well, I, I think you know a lot of the work has really been has really focused on unpacking. Well, I mean, some popular education, say by the Lucy Parsons Lab in Chicago, has done a really excellent job of trying to unpack first figuring out what is all the surveillance technology that that Cook County in Illinois uses, and then being able to popularly describe what it does who it targets and how you might how you might contest that. And I mean, one of the things about this that's also overwhelming and complicated is the information is hard to get, right? Um, even on something as simple as an electronic monitor, companies are not held accountable. So they don't write reports, they don't do evaluations. So we don't even know, for example, how many people are on an electronic on electronic monitors in the US at any given moment. Nobody has that data or the companies may have that data, but we can't access it even with Freedom of Information Act requests. So one of the real basic things in terms of fighting back against this is getting information so you so you can act so you can accurately figure out you know what's 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 really taking what's really taking place. I mean for me that's that's kind of a starting point. And the work that we've done, say in the state of Illinois where we where we tried to push for a legislation to eliminate electronic monitors, we we found that we had to we had to press the the state to reveal who was on the monitor and uh, what penalties they faced, et cetera, et cetera. So all these details are really difficult. I know you always say that activists must be nerds, right? 
So uh, when when you're when you're fighting this stuff, you have to do research, and you find in this particular with these particular technologies, uh, the data is not easily accessible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it is true. Activists it, throughout the history of uh, liberation struggle have been nerds. Um, spontaneity has its um, power and uses. However, the most successful large-scale changes come about because people have figured out what to do and do it. It doesn't mean they have to have PhDs or even be able to read, but rather be able to focus and think systematically about problems. So I was thinking as you were talking about the book that um, Vicki Law and Maya Shenwer uh, published about a year and a half ago called A Prison by Any Other Name, which also gives us some uh, insights into the expansion of the police state into every corner of vulnerable people's lives. And uh, I wonder whether the Lucy Parsons project or other projects that you know about have done the kinds of grassroots um, uh, information gathering that can become the basis for a concerted uh, struggle, whether it's uh, struggling against the local police or against the state legislature and so forth. Um, I'll, I'll give another example to maybe make this a bit more concrete. Uh, some years ago in California, in rural California, in the part of California where they were building prison after prison after prison, there were all kinds of people, and as there still are, doing all kinds of work around questions of environmental uh, justice as well as economic justice. And we, prison abolitionists, learned pretty quickly that these movements actually were one. The movement against environmental racism, the movement for economic justice, and the movement to end prisons were one thing. And learned by learning side by side with our comrades in rural California how we could make that a reality. We learned from a small group of comrades, for example, who had been uh, suffering the toxics, toxic atmosphere produced by a fire that had burned for more than a year, a, a fire where 40 million tires, like from automobiles, had been burning for 40 million years, uh, 40 million tires had been burning for more than a year, um, our, our comrades from a small community realized that if they went door to door and asked people what their um, experience was of this um, toxic atmosphere that they were all breathing, that would form the basis for the next step in movement. Just to ask, what's your experience? So that's also the kind of nerd work. It's not only trying to find um, uh, spreadsheets and do mathematical calculations, but also just systematically finding out what's going on. So do you have maybe some examples of that kind of nerd work? Sure. I mean, I think from, from the start, 
Um, focusing on electronic monitoring for a minute, and then I want to talk about some work around ending cash bail and pretrial detention. But um, we started from the beginning um, with the idea that if we were going to, if people were going to find out about the impact of electronic monitoring, we had to gather the stories of people who were on monitors because the authorities were keeping no data on this. So myself and uh, the person that works with me primarily on this, Emmett Sanders, who himself was on a monitor after doing more than two decades in Illinois state prisons, we went around interviewing people in various places. We went to, well, I mean, we went to Chicago, we interviewed people in California. I interviewed people in Michigan. I interviewed people in Wisconsin. But we we gathered their experiences of of electronic monitors, and through that, we were able to to put together a picture of what electronic monitoring actually how it impacted people. And we found that if we recorded these stories, that they became very powerful testimony, much more powerful actually than spreadsheets and all that stuff, which is important. But we all, but we said, we kind of think the lived experience is, is the richest data. And then, but you need the other, you need all of that together. So if we, if we move that into, if we move that into the state, we, we put together a bill to, to, uh, eliminate the use of electronic monitoring for people coming out of prison in Illinois. And we got, and we had hearings and the people that were impacted went and testified in those hearings. And one woman whose mother, uh, sorry, whose son had been on electronic monitor came into the test, into the, into the room with the box that her son had had for electronic monitoring and said, here, you left this thing in my house. You can have it back now. And then talked about how, you know, her, her son had a medical emergency and he didn't he couldn't get permission to leave and she had to decide as a mother whether to violate him or not but i'm just using that as an example to say these stories become very powerful but if we move into the um in in into the into cook county the chicago community bond fund and later on uh, the illinois coalition to end end uh, uh money bond um they they started by doing by collecting stories and by also mobilizing court watchers. So they they trained court watchers to go into court and record what was happening in in in, in the courts to see if the, some of the reforms that had been put into place to see if they were to see if they were being followed. And then they produced periodic reports. And then they had all kinds of media, social media op-eds, et cetera, et cetera, constantly monitoring the, the sheriff and all of the all of law enforcement in, in, in Cook County to see if they were actually reducing the jail population as they had promised and reducing the use of electronic monitoring and other punitive technologies. So they so they studied not only the jail population, but they studied electronic monitoring. They studied all the other conditions that were put on people as part of pretrial release, and they and they really became the 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 experts on this. But they also were able to strategize in ways that ended up having in ways that ended up with the passage of the Pretrial Fairness Act in Illinois, which is the first uh, piece of legislation in the United States to eliminate cash. Uh, bail uh, pretrial. So that's so all, but but they did this through an abolitionist lens. So they were very careful about what they were willing to give up to get a law to get a bill passed. So this is kind of the the complicated issue that we face when we try to engage these things. 
carve outs. Are we going to car? Are we going to carve out people that have sex offense convictions? So we're going to we're going to let them rot, but we're going to let other people out. So these are kind of some of the kind of difficult decisions that we face when we're trying to deal with this at a legislative level, but still maintain an abolitionist vision. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's just great. And your your um, detailed answer, which I'm really grateful for, um, gives the people who are listening to us today a sense of the um, the kind of detailed work that folks are doing there in Illinois and elsewhere um, that may or may not result in eventually a legislative victory, but it's definitely expanding the, the ground for abolitionist organizing in general, or what I call making abolition geography. That's what's being made. Um, you, you remind me of uh, a long process that some of us went through. Again, this is back in my days in California, when at the very beginning of the 2000s, very beginning of this century, um, we, uh, Critical Resistance, California Prison Moratorium Project, and one other organization, uh, the Friends of the Kangaroo Rat, in fact, uh, went uh, up against the state of California to try to stop them from building their newest proposed prison. And it was in the context of that fight that we did that kind of urban rural work that I described earlier, um, uh, forming uh, solidarity, not allies, solidarity, becoming one with people doing environmental racism work or anti-racism work in urban and rural areas, in economic justice, uh, uh, issues about um, uh, immigration and migration, all of that, just putting it together, putting it together. And at one point, we were we were making so much good noise and so much good trouble, as the late um, Representative uh, Lewis might have said, that um, the, the then governor of the state decided to kind of shun us off to the side by looking like he was going to start a reform process that would dilute our more radical ideas. So we thought, well, well, let's see if we can get someone on this governor's uh, commission to study mass incarceration just so we can have a a nagging voice at the left end of the table. So we kept faxing in my CV and they obviously put it straight into the shredder. They didn't stop and even read it because they weren't about to put any kind of representation um, from the abolitionists on this uh, commission. Uh, And the commission was run by a guy, I kid you not, named Joe Gunn. You can't make this stuff up. It's really quite astonishing. So what we did was we said, well, they can have their commission. We'll start our own. So we formed what we called the Shadow Commission. And we announced hearings all over the state of California, which, as you know, is a big place. And we would just let it be known. We would get go into common um, uh, uh 
cause with people in urban and rural areas, in neighborhoods, in small towns, in bigger towns, have uh, explained what we were about, find the two or three people who are everywhere who are inclined to abolition, whether or not they call themselves abolitionists, and then announce that the commission, the shadow commission is in town to hear what people had to say. And we were always packed, packed. People came out to talk to us. And we always kept our promise, which was we will gather what we hear and we will take it places where it could perhaps tip the, the scale, the balance of justice, but we can't promise anything other than we will not stop repeating what we've learned. And it sounds like this, this modality, which I know is one that had, uh, has had a long history throughout all revolutionary movements, whether we look at Guinea-Bissau, whether we look at South Africa, whether we look at what the MST is doing in Brazil now, whether we look at what is happening in some of the really astonishing um, organizational um, uh, successes in India and beyond, it's always the same, which is ground up with an understanding of what the thing, we're calling it the cloud today, is. <laughs> so um, I wonder if uh, we could talk for a little bit, you know, zero in on some of these uh, experiences and, and speak specifically to the fact that, um, that uh, ankle uh, shackles do turn people's homes into prisons and really put the cost of that, uh, of being unfree, onto households and communities. I'm thinking about the mother that you uh, described to us who came with the box to the hearing to say, here, you can have this back. <laughs> but thinking also about one of the um, effects of uh, electronic um, carceral systems is that it is possible to compel households and communities to be unsworn deputies for the police. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because so when I came home, when I came home from prison, um, you know, two days after the. Two days after uh, a woman employed by the Illinois Department of Corrections came and slapped that thing on my ankle. And as she as she closed the door to leave, my partner shouted all kinds of nasty things, which I won't repeat. But, you know, the, but this these people, you know, they're they're bringing this jail into your house. Right. And then they told me that I was only going to be allowed out of the house from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. So that, that that was that's where this book started. <laughs> right there at that moment, I said, what the hell? It's four hours a day. And that was very typical in Illinois at that time for people on parole. But I think your point is about 
you know, families being impacted that there's there's an there's what I call the Martha Stewart model of electronic monitoring, whereas you're sending putting somebody on electronic monitor who lives on a 151 acre ranch who has un, you know unlimited access to resources and all of the things that they need so that they can be they can be pretty comfortable under house arrest. But that's not who's under house arrest. Who's under house arrest is 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 uh, is, you know, poor people is Black and brown people, in in in, in particular, in, in in communities that are under-resourced, they may be living with four, five, six, eight family members in the same space. They may not be able to go out of that space. So their family members not only have to deal with the fact that this body is always here, and if it's somebody who's just done ten years in prison, that's a body with a lot of issues, and you've got to deal with it. And so. But then you have some some rules for electronic monitoring say that you're only allowed to have movement for to do laundry and grocery shopping if there's no one else living in your house that can do those tasks. So the gender implications of all of this are incredible because we know that probably 85 to 90 percent of the people on uh you know, on monitor are coming out of men's prisons and men's jails. So that means it's sisters, mothers, uh, partners, etc., daughters that end up doing all of those tasks, as well as doing the, the 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 jailing work, making sure the person doesn't go out. But also, there's the whole set of counseling responsibilities that come with dealing with somebody who's actually caged in your house. You know, so and the, you know, this is something that judges never think of at all. Um, and also the I mean, the other part of that is the fact that sometimes people are sent are put on house arrest in their family residence, which may be precisely the absolute worst place they could be. They could be put. And I think particularly of a woman I know from Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Christy Puckett Williams, who had a who had a history of of of, of being uh, abused by her partner and also, a, a, you know, a history of um uh, substance use and she was put she was put on a monitor into that house where all that took place and so um it, you so you're setting that up to be repeated and it's i think that's most apparent when you have youth that are put on these thing on these on these devices who are maybe put into a into a house where all kinds of stuff is happening whether it's domestic conflict, whether it's whether it's uh, substance use, whatever, and they can't escape it. They just have to sit there and and, and wait for whatever is going to happen to happen. So it's it's yeah, it, it really is a big part of what happens. And it's and I think because of the gender implications of it, it's also off the radar. It's not even talked about by the decision makers in these in these things. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, You'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century, 
from her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, and indeed, um, uh, to paint a, a slightly different picture, but one that is not uh, in contradiction to the one that you just painted, even if, even if somebody coming home from a men's or a, a prison for men or a prison for women or a prison for youths um, uh, goes into a situation uh, in which they are, their home becomes a jail. Whether or not there's all kinds of other disruptive activity in the house, when the house becomes a jail, it's no longer home for anybody. It's no, so all tensions rise. If I'm understanding you and I'm understanding what I read in your book, all tensions rise. Um, the, the hidden uh, money cost to people who are um, not only paying the cost of the, of the device on their ankle, but paying all of the other costs to keep things together, then changes an entire social dynamic that would could be all right or not, but won't be because right. home has become not home. It's become this other thing. And it also me it also creates a dependency on the part of the person who's on the monitor, which makes them feel helpless. They can't contribute to the income. They can't do any of the tasks. They can't go to their children's school events. They can't do all kinds of things that they would want to be involved in to try to be human, right? And instead, they're just you know parked in that parked in that house. So there's all kinds of resentments that build up going both ways. And you you remind me of the sort of double meaning of depression as it relates to all of these things we're talking about today. So there is a psychological depression that is uh, uh, attached to and arises from having been unfree, being subject to perpetual punishment, becoming a, a burden to people you love or being compelled to live with people who, though maybe your relatives you don't love, and all of these other things. This adds, uh, creates the conditions for some kind of psychological depression at the same time that, again, the costs, the money costs that people are paying for bail restitution, paying for the device, and so on and so forth, brings about an economic depression, household by household. And we see that the um, diverging fortunes of uh, rich and poor in the United States that are deepening by the second are also, at a finer grain of analysis, diverging when we see which households are weighted down by, as we say, justice-impacted individuals and relationships. So 
from incarceration, as you've just described it, to the fact that at the current moment, probably half of the labor force of the United States has some kind of disqualifying arrest or conviction that then makes it possible for employers to pay them less or fire them sooner. Again, brings us back to how, as you put it so beautifully earlier, the scale of this problem goes from the ankle of an individual to the entire globalized world of neoliberal capitalism. It goes the whole way. And one of the ways it goes through the the boundaries and borders of the nation state has everything to do with the um, uh, the weight that's put on to the ankles and the lives of long distance migrants who might not be um, uh, uh, authorized to work, but are moving mostly in order to be able to work or in order to be able to have a, a re- reasonably secure life. Harsha Walia's book, Border and Rule, gives us a lot of useful insights into into these problems and and, uh, possible opportunities. And one of the things that I was thinking about that maybe we could talk about a few minutes is this. In the US, we know, and I suspect that there are probably a few people listening to us today who say, oh, but wait a minute, didn't the people, don't the people who are are under incarceration, didn't they, didn't they choose it? Isn't that what they want? Aren't they participating in this? You know, why are you guys complaining? Um, and if that's what you feel, maybe you could turn this off and go listen to another show. But I want to address the question of choice and how people make decisions in the context of this world. And that is getting out of a lockup, getting out of a jail, getting out of the harshness of environments, which before COVID as well as during COVID means that people's lives are shortened by the fact of having being there, is uh, a completely understandable um, uh, decision that people make in the context of having very little power over their own futures. It's also true that before people go into being locked up, in most cases, most cases in the United States, and when I say most, I mean more than 90% of cases, people don't actually go to trial and have a jury of their peers say, well, the evidence tells us, it looks like maybe you did it, but rather people take a plea bargain which means they have consented to being punished in most cases because they were threatened with more if they persisted in following uh, the path through a courtroom. Similarly, for many, many people who are caught up by ICE, uh, many consent, quote unquote, to their own uh, uh, incarceration or detention and then deportation. And people talk about that as though it were some unfettered ability to make um, 
rational choices like economic man in the world rather than people trying to figure out how to stay alive another day. So we can see how this entire problem and the surveillance that encases it extends from the ankle to long distance migrants and beyond around the world. And I wonder if um, you have any uh, stories or examples of uh, people, uh, perhaps you could elaborate about Mijente or other people who have done work on um, uh, migrant rights issues who have figured out ways to organize transnationally in, in this area. Um, yeah. I don't have I don't have a lot of examples of transnational organization, but I do want to but I do want to talk about this issue in maybe a slightly different way because okay. I mean I think one of the things that one of the things that always comes up whenever you talk about electronic monitoring from the first time I ever complained about it was it's better than jail it's better than prison and I and even when you're dealing with people who are trying to campaign you know for for um, you know, uh, against incarceration, they quickly run to that mantra. And I think the, the, the point that you're trying to bring there is that what and the choices that an individual has and the choices that an individual must make are not what we fight for as a solution. Those two things are different. So if somebody says they need they want to come out on an electronic monitor and be with their children, there's no way I'm going to say, oh, well, you shouldn't do that. Electronic monitoring is terrible. You're in prison. Get the hell out of there. I came out on a monitor. I, um, I mean, I was done with my sentence, but I mean, there's no way I was going to say, oh, no, I'll, I'll go ahead and do another year in prison instead of being on the monitor. But that doesn't mean that we confuse that with what we're actually fighting for. We don't we're not fighting we're fighting for people to be free. It's not an either or, as as, as my friend Emmett always says, it's not either jail or uh, a monitor. The third choice is freedom, and we want, and that's what we want to keep in mind as we as we push ahead as we push ahead for this. Um, I think with the um, yeah, I'm I, I'm just not that familiar with that transnational um, work. What I have seen though is that there's begun to is that there's been a lot of research done on migrants who are on electronic monitors research that hasn't been done with other people so for example a group from the Cardoso law school did a survey of 147 migrants who were on electronic monitors and what they found is that 70% of them said they had aches pains headaches sores all kinds of physical ailments 20% of them said they had experienced electric shock from an electronic monitor now i have never seen a study of this and i mean you know i, I didn't have particular physical responses to the device. But in the last sort of couple of years, I've been, I get these pictures from people of their legs with these massive open sores and things that are coming from electronic monitors, particularly from the scram devices that measure blood alcohol. But it's not only that. So I think the the, the experience of 
of uh, migrants on monitors and the degree to which we have a large number of researchers who are focused on that and who are fighting that in a, in a, in a very you know, principled, strategic way, I think that's going to surface a whole lot of information about what happens with these devices that we haven't seen before. <clears throat> Nerds. <laughs> Nerds, nerds, nerds. Um, I'm, I'm reminded that um, Angelica Chazaro from University of Washington Law School has been doing uh, astonishing work in this area as well. And um, I also um, thought I'd share a little bit about some transnational work that is not based in the United States, but is um, uh, kind of follows the arc of especially migration paths uh, from uh, West and uh, West Central Africa, across the Atlantic, through Brazil, and then North up through Central America, into Mexico, and then people heading to places like Minneapolis or Toronto or, or Vancouver, BC, wherever. And one of the things that has happened is that, um, as we know, the, uh, the U.S., following a pattern that is also true for the EU, um, using territories outside the EU, or for Australia, using an island that is not within the territory of, of Australia and so forth, these various big, wealthy economies outsource to uh, less wealthy or more dependent economies uh, the work of having detention centers, monitoring people, and so forth. So this has a combination of e-carceration and old-fashioned in-the-cage carceral uh, experiences as well. And so what I'm learning, uh, especially from um, one of my students, uh, an activist and a nerd called uh, Diane Enobabor, is that, um, for example, in Brazil, there is a growing urban um, expression of the uh, landless rural workers movement. So the MST is mostly rural in the countryside, but there is an urban expression of their organizing and insights. And they've been doing a lot of work to um, uh, help long distance migrants who pass through uh, some of the larger cities of Brazil, particularly Sao Paulo and Rio, um, to evade uh, capture by surveillance or by cages and to um, thrive until they are able to move on. And there's a connection between that work and work that's happening, again, all the way up along the migration path to Mexico. So while Kamala Harris was uh, standing in Mexico saying, don't come, there were all kinds of people lined up all the way down to Brazil saying, we'll help you get there. And it strikes me that um, this kind of transnational solidarity, and it is exactly that, or what I prefer to say, internationalism, um, is also essential for us, even if 
in each of the individual struggles, there might not be the internationalist dimension, having in mind that what is happening to communities who might be um, uh, incarcerated in Chicago or somewhere else in the United States is connected to these global processes um, is quite important. Uh, the the stories that I heard about some of the um, uh, solidarity and, as I said, internationalism uh, coming out of Brazil under conditions, as you know, the head of government of Brazil is a fascist, um, do, do give me uh, a fair amount of hope, no less than when um, in the early days of protests in Ferguson, it gave me a great deal of hope to see that young people in Palestine were, you know, notifying their comrades in Ferguson about how to deal with tear gas because the young people in Palestine knew what to do when they were tear gas. So these are some large and small examples of, of where we might be headed in the future. So a couple of things on that. I mean, and, and I, I mean, I think that's part of why I, I wrote this book. And like I say, it's a work in progress. But, you know, I mean, I spent 18 years of my life living in Southern Africa and Zimbabwe and South Africa, you know, working closely with liberation movements and with working class organizations. So, I mean, I it, it's, it's often quite frustrating doing criminal justice reform work in the U.S. And you're talking about something like an electronic monitor and trying to get trying to make those connections you know it's we it's uh, I, I, it, it's almost like an inverse rela relationship that the more information we have the less people know about what's going on in the rest of the world so we so it, it becomes really difficult to try to uh, put those ties out you know to, for people to make those connections so I think that's important to have those discussions I mean, the other thing I just wanted to say is that I mean one of the things that that kind of you know, was a bit of an aha moment for me when I was doing this research is that having done a lot of research into the colonial history of Southern Africa um, and, you know, Cecil John Rhodes and the British imperialists coming and finding a place where no, no one lived or no one knew how to use the land. It really reminded me so much of the, 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 the philosophy of, of, of uh, Jeff Bezos and, Bill Gates and so forth, that this digital space is unconquered, unoccupied territory. And this is our territory. We know how to use it. We'll let you come in, but we're going to lay down all the ground rules. We're going to write all the programs. We're going to make all the rules that you have to abide by. So we sit, even though we're pushing back, we're sitting here using all the technology that they've allowed us to have. And so I think that, you know, there, there, this, this kind of digital colonialism um, we need to think about how to, how does that work? And I know groups like the Detroit Community Technology Project have tried to think about how we can get technology that's kind of under under local control and not under the the control of of you know the colonialists. So I think that's a really uh, a really important connection to make kind of historically. I I think you're exactly right, um, and. Uh, just, just to take it maybe one more step uh, in the same direction, and that's thinking about big tech. Uh, anybody who, uh, like me, follows the fortunes of the biggest capitalist firms on earth know 
that uh, Amazon and Microsoft and the rest are among the biggest capitalist firms on earth. There's, there's, there's nothing remotely close to where they are now. And what used to be, you know, the huge firms like General Motors from when James and I were kids, ha, <laughs> not anymore, not anymore. And they're, they're, their um, uh, economic power comes from a series of um, things. Their economic power comes because they sell things that people use. They um, have such enormous revenues that they play a huge role in lobbying uh, various governments to uh, ensure that they have uh, the most beneficial tax, labor relations, and other um, situations. And because they're so big and so um, flexible, they also have armies of math whizzes that uh, suggest uh, or counsel where they should, um, as it were, uh, declare their Im immense revenues in order to minimize taxes. So we know that there are the offshore um, uh, tax havens like the Cayman Islands. And I want to remind people in the United States something that I've been learning about and that I know Nick Estes wrote about some years ago, but there are new developments, that South Dakota is one of the major offshore tax havens on the planet on the planet. So unseated land, lack of rural hospitals, you know, really lousy broadband for the people who live in South Dakota, offshore tax haven. So all of these things go together. We know also that these big firms um, in general, the big tech firms that are US-based are the reason the US economy rebounded so quickly um, as we entered the long, long and endless crisis of COVID. They pulled up the entire stock market, but it's also true that other firms, whether ones like Amazon that have a jillion workers or ones, uh, other firms that don't, got a big bounce because all investors know that U.S. companies are bound by the weakest labor protection laws in the overdeveloped world. They can hire and fire at will. And that is what, of course, um, has happened. So all of these things are connected. And they're connected as well, as you were just saying, to um, the entire question of, well, what should these technologies be in relation to liberated life. Amazon should be a public utility owned by everyone in the world, for example. Um, the, the, the kinds of minerals that are all, some of which are already conflict minerals and, and minerals that are becoming conflict minerals that are essential for us to be able to see each other right now across whatever we are 5,000 miles apart, like lithium, like cobalt, like copper and so forth. These um, uh, resources uh, essential elements of contemporary life uh, 
sit under an inland that is occupied by some of the world's poorest people. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, the poor, poor people. They're people who are struggling to take control of the resources in Bolivia, in Chile, in the DRC. And so we who are abolitionists must understand that that is part of abolition too. It's, these things are not separate. So we might have a couple of questions in our chat. Let me see. Um, okay. All right, let me, let me turn to one of our questions. Listening to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I remembered Anne Ungles, whom I don't know, explains the way the state relieves itself from the costs associated to domestic life. Do you see a connection between unpaid labor and home imprisonment? Oh, that's a great question. Can you speak to that, James? Uh, well, I mean, the assumption the assumption is that if someone is put on house arrest, that there's a domestic labor force to take care of them. Um, and it also means that they're not going to be able to do any of that reproductive labor themselves because they're because they're captive in their in, in the in the house. So, I mean, that whole, you know, that whole source of reproductive labor just just gets put onto whoever's to to whoever's there. I mean, it's it's a it's a classic example. Um, it is. It is totally a classic example. And, you know, you make me think of people like Wages for Housework campaign that have been talking about this for, you know, decades and decades and decades. I'm not familiar with Ann Ungles, but I'm sure that Ann Ungles is familiar with people like Selma James and Margaret Prescott, uh, Wilmette Brown and others, as well as um, people who are writing in, in more contemporary times on these exact issues of unwaged, unpaid labor and the fact that reproductive labor underlies everything. I mean, everything, not some things, everything. I have another question here from Shannon Fox. Were you able to look into the impact of electronic monitoring on people in the shelter system? I'm still at a Catholic worker hospitality house, and it's something that worries us. Anything you could speak to, James? Um, I haven't done specific research on that. I've certainly, A, I mean, there's a lot of jurisdictions where they won't, if you're going into a shelter and you have to go on electronic monitoring, you just don't get released. So that's, I mean, that's one part of the piece. And then it becomes... It's also the, the the policy of the shelters, um, whether they're going to accommodate people who are on electronic monitors or not, whether they're able to do that. Um, so there's but I haven't seen anyone who's done a study of that. It would be a, a very, a very useful thing. I have seen I have seen blood banks that refuse to take blood from somebody on a monitor. But. Wow. Wow. But the shelters, shelters, it seems to be quite uneven in terms of whether or not you can go in there or, or, or not. Um. Um, let's see. And Adele Nicholas is actually asking us to review 
what we've been talking about. So we'll just talk about it some more. What can we do to push back on the over-reliance and GPS monitoring of people who are on supervised release, release after prison? Well, more examples, James, of how people have organized. Well, Adele, I mean, you're, you're in Illinois, so I know you've seen the stuff that we, that we did in terms of trying to get legislation. Um, that, I mean, actually what came out of that legislation is that IDOC, the De Illinois Department of Corrections, because of all the pressure that came, that came to bear on them, because of that, they have basically said they're not going to put people on electronic monitors unless they're compelled to be on electronic monitor by statute, by statute which is a very narrow uh, narrow scope of people who are, you know, who are um, who, who are in, in 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 prison. But I think, I mean, if you're going to deal with supervised release or you're going to deal with parole, I mean, you, you have to engage with the state. You know, you you have to engage with legislation. You have to engage with policy. And I think you, so. You have to do two things. One is you have to mobilize people with the stories because the stories are not out there. They're not known even to the decision makers. And then secondly, you have to build alliances with the people that have the authority to make decisions, the budgetary decisions, the criminal legal system decisions. And I guess the third part of that is for you to decide where, you know, how you're going to, what you're going to accept, what's your goal, what's your, what, you know, are you going to, are you going to do carve outs? Are you going to target a certain sector of the population to be exempt from electronic monitoring? Are you going to try to reduce the harm done by it? Or are you going to try to eliminate it altogether? You have to kind of figure out what's possible um, and build some allies amongst the decision makers and, and the impacted people to do that. What and I'll just say that the last thing about that is that, I mean, these people don't have research. They don't have research. When we had a hearing in the state of Illinois, the deputy D director of the Department of Corrections was asked by a one of the legislators, how many people do you have on electronic monitoring? And she turns around and looks at me and says, Mr. Kilgore says it's 2,500. <laughs> so I'd say, I mean, that's how ignorant they are. You know, they don't keep the data. And even when they have it, they don't look at it. So you have, to, is, you have to force them to be accountable. I mean, they're spending millions on this. They should know how many people are on it, how many people are getting sent back, why they're putting people on it, et cetera, et cetera. You have to make them be accountable on, on all scores. And, you know, you're putting your finger on a couple of, well, two fingers on a couple of things that um, I'm really glad Adele uh, got us to look back, to look ahead about. One is the level of uh, research knowledge that these various um, systems have, California, New York, Illinois, and so forth, about their own systems is dismal. Why is it dismal? It's dismal because it doesn't matter to anybody to whom it might matter whether it's better. I mean, it's it is it's really an astonishing thing. So that's that's one thing which actually leads to a second point of the first finger, which is that um, uh, one of the things that we know about what we call the state, whether we're calling talking about the municipal government of Urbana or the the county government or the state legislature um, and branches of government of, of Illinois, the entire United States, or even some of these interstate solidarity 
um, you know, intergovernmental organizations is that they, one of the things that makes the state the state is how it um, compiles and uses data about people, places, and things, right? That's one of the things. This is one of the features of the modern state. It is astonishing to me to see how the most rapidly aggrandizing chunk of the modern state, the police state, has so much information about all of us, but nothing that it can tell us about itself. And this is a political decision. It's not just, they're not sloppy. This is a political decision that the withholding of certain kinds of information, the fact that they turned to you, James, and said, how many? I've also had that happen to me. Is is really something. And And it's important for us to put together the most powerful information we can to try to achieve what we want to achieve. But not to confuse facts with power. That the facts that we gather become for we who gather them and all the people who participate in the gathering, they become the political value we need to do the work we're going to do. It's it's not a matter of you're right, I'm wrong. And that's that's the hardest thing about being a nerd is you get all excited that you know something that somebody else doesn't know and it doesn't matter. Right. So I think, I mean, and I find that, you, so doing a lot of local work, um, sometimes a lot of students come in and they give up and they, they dredge up all kinds of data and information, which is very interesting and useful. But like you say, it's not an academic debate. You can win the debate in the in the public participation all you want, but you, until you mobilize people who are impacted by this and get them to be able to to incorporate the data that you generate into their arguments and discussions, people have to listen to them. But in most cases, they don't have to listen to people that just gather data. There's no reason for them to. And you find in local governments, you can become much more expert than the than the people who are in power and and you have to be but you have to be more than that so i mean i always tell people because a lot of people want to organize around jails or around electronic monitoring and their local level i say how many you got to start by giving a pro a data profile of what you're dealing with but then what where's your strategy you you can't do that alone you can't do it with spreadsheets you have to be able to mobilize people that that can speak from experience This is exactly it. People that can speak from experience and people that can speak from experience, um, understanding as you understand and as so many people who have spent time inside the system, as well as people who have spent time organizing for abolition, that the fact of experience in and of itself doesn't make anybody more knowledgeable about anything except for their own experience. It doesn't become a political movement until people put together energy and ideas and understandings and 
the repetition that comes from going to the hearing and going to the hearing or going door to door, all of these other things we're talking about. Like none of it's magical, none of it's factual. And the fact that one person or two people or even 10 people had an experience is not itself, it's not itself enough, even though the experience of all of us coming together, learning from each other, um, and growing the movement is what's necessary. Right. It's absolutely and it's that, necessary. And it's that reflected experience that, that matters. So from my own experience, and this is what I really learned from the working class movement in South Africa, that the working class movement became powerful when workers themselves were able to reflect on the capitalist economy, the apartheid economy that they were dealing with and, and incorporate intellectuals and nerds into their ranks to help them build that picture. But at the end of the day, they stepped forward and, 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 and fought the struggle. And that's, and that's a difficult issue to, that's a difficult process to go through, but it's absolutely essential that you incorporate incorporate all those elements to build a political movement that's going to make significant change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can see, we can see um, results. Uh, they take a long time, but they actually do, things do change, things happen. Uh, for example, uh, I was talking a while ago uh, in our conversation about uh, struggling and organizing against um, the state of California. And in the, in the context of that struggle, there were many, many strands, uh, many, many kind of uh, sites of focus, but constantly bringing them together. So I can tell you that there are are less than 25% of the number of people in prisons for women in California than there were when we started that fight. I can tell you that the Los Angeles County is not building the multi-billion dollar jails it was going to build when we started that fight. I can tell you that the number of people locked up in California in total, in all of the prisons, prisons for men and prisons for women, is not only dramatically lower than it was when we started the fight, but it's less than half of what the state was planning when we started the fight to have in their custody. And they're not on monitors. So there are all of these different um, uh, dimensions of the struggle that we have learned, that you've learned in Illinois, that we learned, and we learned to do the work that we do because so many people in the contemporary abolition movement in the United States and abroad come out of the anti-apartheid struggle, come out of the Black Panther Party for self-defense, come out of the best expressions of the Communist Party, come out of all of these other um, uh, struggles uh, in local and global contexts uh, to realize freedom for people. This is this is who we are and who the abolition movement is or should be today. And I keep getting frustrated uh, over and over again when people say to me, "Well." Well, when you abolish prisons, then what? And it's like, are you not listening to us? We're talking about all of how we live together in the world. 
it's it's there is so much presence that we can count on and uh, help to flourish. Let's see. We have another question, I think, also from Adele. Uh, Adele Nicholas, thank you. Uh, what else, other than directly tracking, is the data from electronic monitoring being used for? Is it just the state is using it? It's also in the hands of the private corporations selling the monitors? Well, as usual, we don't know. <laughs> but, 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 but what I can say is this: that you know, we've looked, we've seen a lot of contracts um, for electronic monitoring programs. We've seen a lot of report. We've seen some data that these, uh, the local authorities or state authorities have put out, although it's very limited. Um, but essentially, there's very little control over what happens to that data. So in, in a few jurisdictions, you'll find a contract will say that that data belongs to the local jurisdiction. But in most, in many cases, there's no real uh, boundaries as to where that, where that data goes or what gets done with it by the company. And in fact, there's, I'm trying to remember where the jurisdiction is, but there's one jurisdiction where if, when you're put on a, when you're put on a monitor, you have to sign a form that says, I recognize this data is not mine. I don't have any control over it. I don't own it. You know, it's yours to do it with whatever you want. So, but I mean, if I can, you know, let my imagination run wild, I mean, I can think of at least two things that's happening with that data. The first thing is it's getting put into the databases of the criminalized population. So this is the way in which, you know, when, when you go to rent an apartment, all of a sudden, you know, all your data comes up that you, know, you were evicted, you've been in jail, you've been in substance abuse uh, treatment programs, et cetera, et cetera. All that profile comes up and it gets in your way of living your life. And I mean, I know that's happening with this data. I mean, I can't track it specifically when, where, and how, but I can, t having spoken to people who face all these data blocks to getting their life together, I know that's happening. And of course, the second piece is, you know, they're selling it to marketers to either um, try to sell goods to people or try to warn marketers, don't sell goods to these people. These people are a bad credit risk. <clears throat> The, um, the, the fact that people who are uh, put on these uh, ankle shackles uh, have to sign away their right to the data is uh, quite an, a, a dramatic touch, given that everybody who's listening in on this conversation today has given away voluntarily given away rights to all kinds of data. Like every single time, you know, whatever, this is Skype, Zoom, YouTube, da, 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 they update. People scroll through the new agreement and click agree without ever reading a word, right? right. We're, we're, we're all so conditioned to give away rights to information, not only information about ourselves, but information that we produce about ourselves by walking around our house or by scrolling through the internet or buying things or not buying things, you name it. You know, people, people use those frequent shopper cards at the supermarket. Oh my God, that's just all data about you that looks like a discount from time to time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I call this in the book, I have, I call this a, the, the, the cell phone paradox 
that that we have these devices that we're totally addicted to, that we sleep with, that we spend more time with than any single human being, and they're killing us. I mean, you know, they're gathering all this data to to control us and and you know and punish at least some of us because of the data that we're handing them. And I mean, so for me, I'm thinking when I look back on colonial history and the and liberation struggles, I mean, it takes people who are colonized quite a while to figure out what are all the nuts and bolts of this system that's got us down and how can we organize to resist it? And we're really in the early stages of fighting against this, of fighting against the robber barons of the 21st century. I mean, we're, this is very early, very early days. We're, we're, we're having, we're just beginning to be able to convince people that maybe being on electronic monitor isn't all paradise, right? I mean, we're just starting out. So there's a, there's a lot, there's a long way to go, long way to go on this, um, and uh, it, it is, it's going to get more and more complicated before the, before we see the light. <laughs> before we see the light. Well, we're we're coming up to the top of the hour. So I wonder, James, if you have any um, final thoughts you'd like to share. OK, well. I mean, I just want to thank you, Ruthie, for this uh, conversation and to and Haymarket for putting this, um, you know, for for putting this on. I mean, I hope. I mean, one of the points that Ruthie made earlier is, and I and we confront this over and over again that, that all of the, the the immense scale of this data and the immense scale of people who have nothing else to do in their leisure time but go off into space for a few minutes is like. It's it, it's it's a it's a little bit it's a, it, it's always daunting it's always it's always scary but at the same time we you know we we have to try to figure out ways to push back against it because I think we recognize the the historical moment that we're at is it's a scary moment but it's a moment where it can be turned into opportunity but we have to figure out what that looks like. I mean, if we go back a year and a half ago, we had millions of people in the streets in response to George, George Floyd's murder. What, what happened to, what happened to that? How can we build on that? How can we recreate some of that, some of that energy, but not be totally taken aback by the uh, ups and downs of the way in which things, things are going in this uh, mad, mad world that, that, that racial capitalism has built for us. <laughs> It certainly has. Well, it's really been great talking with you, James. You always give me uh, so many things to think about. And just to kind of put a coda onto your um, uh, your last remark, uh, clearly we are talking about organizing and we're saying organize, organize, organize. But that also means for us to pay attention to people who are already organized and figure out how uh, building big, strong, solid, um, uh, extensive um, uh, organizations uh, can happen. So we've, we've talked about Amazon a few times, and we know that Amazon workers are trying to unionize. That is not a small thing. It's a big thing, and it is related to what we're talking about, however indirect that relation might seem to be. Uh, I have been working for the last couple of years with the National Nurses, National Nurses United, 
amazing frontline workers who are in solidarity with the Amazon workers and who have an internationalist dimension. And they have come out against the huge spending on polices, uh, police and prisons in their most recent um, uh, uh, annual conference uh, resolutions. So, so those are two examples that don't immediately come to mind when we're talking incarceration, what happens to households, what happens to communities. But if we just look a little bit beyond where we're at, we see that there are people organizing and those are um, uh, people with whom we should be in solidarity. Indeed, they might be unions we belong to. Uh, I want to, again, thank John McDonald for his uh, great and gracious um, uh, technical support, always getting us together in good nature and in good time. I'd like to thank Rachel, who, um, I'm sorry, I don't have your last name, Rachel, who has done the uh, closed captioning. I'm so appreciative to somebody who is willing to type as I talk. I am hardly willing to type as I think. And uh, finally, to all of the people um, there in uh, New Jersey, in solidarity, uh, excuse me, in Illinois, in solidarity with James and the people in First Followers, as well as um, challenging incarceration, who have done so much of the grassroots research necessary for us to have uh, this big picture and have this big conversation. And one last shout I'd like to make, I know there are people who have tuned in from around the planet, like Deb Kilroy, Sisters Inside in Australia, I think is here. Um, I think that some of our comrades in South Africa have tuned in. And I'm pretty sure that some of uh, the people who successfully fought as uh, prison expansion in the UK have tuned in, who are fighting on, on this front and elsewhere. Uh, it makes a difference that we can hear each other, that we listen to each other. I hope that this book is going to be translated soon into some of the big languages that people read, like Portuguese and Spanish and French and Mandarin, so that people can read it and use it and discuss it and fight together for change. So I can think- I, Can I give one last shout out to my comrades in South, from South Africa? I think uh, Laura, Rick, Debbie, and Ixon are there. So thank you very much for connecting. Yes. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is an ongoing conversation and I'm, I'm pleased to have been part of it. Thanks, James. Thanks, Ruthie. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.